This is My Child Will Thrive, and I'm your host, Tara Hunkin, nutritional therapy practitioner, certified GAPS practitioner, restorative wellness practitioner, and mother. I'm thrilled to share with you the latest information, tips, resources, and tools to help you on the path to recovery for your child with ADHD, autism, sensory processing disorder, or learning disabilities. My own experiences with my daughter, combined with as much training as I can get my hands on, research I can dig into, and conferences I can attend, have helped me to develop systems and tools for parents like you who feel overwhelmed trying to help their children. So sit back as I share another great topic to help you on your journey. A quick disclaimer before we get started. My Child Will Thrive is not a substitute for working with a qualified healthcare practitioner. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat your child. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any information or treatments that you have learned about on this podcast. There are many gifted, passionate, and knowledgeable practitioners with hundreds if not thousands of hours of study and clinical experience available to help guide you. Part of our goal is to give you the knowledge and tools you need to effectively advocate for your child so that you don't blindly implement each new treatment that comes along. No one knows your child better than you. No one knows your child's history like you do or can better judge what is normal or abnormal for your child. The greatest success in recovery comes from the parent being informed and asking the right questions and making the best decisions for their child in coordination with a team of qualified practitioners in different areas of specialty. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Autism, ADHD, and Sensory Processing Disorder Summit. In order to learn more about the summit and to sign up for free, please go to www.mychildwillthrive.com forward slash summit. Hi, I'm Tara Hunkin. Welcome back to the My Child Will Thrive podcast. I'm really excited to have with me today, Genia Stevens. She is the founder of thegoodthingsinlife.org and the podcast named the same, The Good Things in Life. And she's going to talk to us today about how we can change our perspective on thinking about what is, what is, what are the good things in life for our children and um, in line with how we're helping them thrive, but not just thinking anymore about just treatments and therapies that we can do to do that, but how we are doing that for them each and every day, where they're at right now, and our vision for them in the future. Before we dive into that interview, I just want to remind you, if you do enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would um, subscribe and take a couple moments to review on whatever podcast platform that you listen to on. The more people that subscribe and review, the more the podcast will be seen by other parents like ourselves that are looking for ways to help their children thrive and get them the good things in life, like Jeannie is going to teach us how to do today. Without further ado, let's dive into that interview. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to have with me today, Genia Steven. Uh, she is the founder of um, Good Things for Life, Good Things in Life for Kids with Disabilities. Genia uh, helps kids with intellectual disabilities build inclusive lives at home, at school, and in the community. She has the Good Things in Life for Kids with Disabilities podcast and manages a community of parents of children with disabilities. 
Having a young sister and son with disabilities and medical complexities led her to a lifetime of training in the disability field under premier thought leaders and mentors. With more than 20,000 downloads, her podcast now gives other parents access to her world-class disability parenting education, complete with courses and membership. She's a practicing midwife and a medical advocate currently completing her Master of Science in Evidence-Based Healthcare at the University of Oxford. She's featured in Travel Without Limits magazine, Community Living Ontario, and has, as well as multiple top-rated podcasts. Genius speaks about creating positive vision for kids with disabilities, getting the good things in life through valued social roles, social capital, and medical safeguarding. And this is why I am so grateful for you to spending some time with us today, because this is something we don't always touch on on the podcast here. And it's so incredibly important because in the end, um, My Child Will Thrive is all about finding a path for each of our kids to thrive um, wherever they're at at this point in time in their lives. So welcome, Junia. Thank you very much, Tara. I'm thrilled to be here. So why don't we drive right in? And um, so you can give us your, obviously you have a wealth of knowledge and perspectives um, in this area. Why are therapies and treatments, in your opinion, limited in how they can help these out-of-the-box kids? Yeah, so therapies and treatments are focused on remediating some aspect of what is happening for the child. And that may be very helpful. It may have some positive outcomes, but it's unlikely to fundamentally change who the person is and make them neurotypical. And what we know is that neurodivergent people in our society are often marginalized. They experience discrimination. They have a hard time finding places of belonging. Um, And so we need additional approaches that are really focused on acceptance, belonging, relationship, and contribution to take us from where therapies end to the good things in life. Yeah, it it is really important to think about that. A lot of parents, when they first come across um, learning about a lot of different treatments and therapies are asking too is, you know, I don't want to change my child. And the idea isn't about changing the child. In my opinion, it's about treatments and therapies are helping to improve their health and um, hopefully overall life outcomes. But in the end, our kids need to find a way um, to, uh, to thrive. Um, as, as they are within the society. So I, I'm really looking forward to hearing some of um, your insights in terms of how they can do that. So with that in mind, what are some of those universal strategies to help our kids build good lives? Yeah, so one of the things that's helpful to think about are valued social roles. So social roles are the way that we be in society, the you know, it's the way we interact with each other. It our role set up expectations for how other people see us and how we see ourselves. It's the primary <clears throat> way in which we um, understand how to interact with each other. You know, we can think about the question that's commonly asked when two people meet, at least adults, what do you do? You know, and we're trying to understand who is this person. who is this person based on their social roles. So there are both positive and 
negative social roles, positive and negative social roles. And we want to focus, of course, on the positive roles, some of the negative roles that our kids might fall into, or, you know, the role of eternal child or the role of menace. And obviously, we want to avoid those. And we want to think about how, what are the roles that typical citizens of this age or typical people of this age have, you know, so for our young kids, that's likely going to be primarily family roles, you know, sister, brother, son, daughter, grandson, you know, that type of thing. School roles, meaning the role of student uh, and recreational roles or interest-based roles, you know, ballerina, drummer, hockey player, those kinds of things. And when we think about the social roles that are typically available to neurotypical kids, what we find is that those are the places where they build their relationships. Those are the places where they find their sense of belonging. Oftentimes what happens for kids with disabilities or neurodivergent kids is that we take a different approach. So the therapy approach gets extended into school where everything is special or different, you know? And so our kids don't typically um, fully fill those typical social roles. And so they're seen as being very different by their peers. But if we can think about supporting them to fill the role of student in those typical ways, you know, um, thinking about how they spend their time, how their routines are structured within the school day, uh, whether or not they have access to the curriculum in the same way that the other kids do. These are things that help both teachers and students to see the student as as a member of the class and it can be really helpful. So we want to be thinking about not just the therapies and interventions, but then how does a typical citizen spend their day and what are the valued social roles that are common for this age group and for somebody who shares the strengths and interests of my son or daughter. Right. So the person who wants to be a hockey player is not going to be successful as a ballerina. Right. You need to be be catering this and making it precise to who your son or daughter is and building on those strengths and interests. So I, I know obviously every child is really different and their their capabilities and, um, or potential uh, challenges are different. But how do you how do you see um, a balance between catering to what they're, they need in terms of supporting their, their needs where they may be having some challenges versus actually balancing that citizen role um, within, for example, within the school setting. I think that's one of the challenges that we all face is we're trying to support them so they feel successful, but at the same time, we want them, we want to create that environment that makes it more inclusive for them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we do is we think about what that role is. So when you think about the average grade six student, for example, you know, how do they, um, what are the routines for their day? What kinds of opportunities do they have, um, both social and academic? What kinds of um, stuff do they bring with them? What do they look like? And this is not to try and make sure every child looks exactly the same when you look at um, you know, you could look at 150 grade six students, they're all going to look different, but they all have the opportunity by grade six to have some influence over what they wear, probably. And, you know, their backpack might have something to do with some of their interests, you know, and so they're coming into their own and grade six students typically have that opportunity to start kind of coming into their own. So you mm -hmm. want to support that for your child as well. And, um, 
and you know academically what are the subjects that the students are learning about so there may be accommodations or modifications that are required in order to support that student to fill that valued social role but you start with the role and then you bring the scaffolding and the supports in around it as opposed to starting with the scaffolding and the supports and trying to make the role fit around that scaffolding and support so most of us have specialists in our lives in some capacity we have dentists we have doctors we've got accountants, lawyers, you know, we have all these specialists that we bring in to provide us with the accommodations and supports that we need in order to live the lives that we want. However, all of those specialists are kept in their proper place as being in service to the life we want. And what happens often for kids with disabilities or kids that are neurodivergent is that the specialist becomes the point or the support becomes the point and we lose sight of the fact that the support really should be in service to the life that the child wants or that we want for our child given their age you know and their ability to um, because of their age to participate in deciding what kind of life they want yeah and no it's it's really really good point that you're making because i do think that as parents we often get so invested in the treatment and therapy aspect um, thinking that that is, and especially when we're being often told that those early years are so important, that it's really mm-hmm. easy to get the child lost in that and, and finding that balance is incredibly difficult. Um, and I, I love the way you flip that around in terms of thinking about the citizen and their role as a, you know, a, a neurotypical or a typical, typically developing child first, and then fitting everything else around it. So I think that's a really helpful perspective flip that uh, I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to. Um, what do you, what can you tell us about what the medical model of disability typically is that you see in the work that you do? Mm-hmm. So the medical model of disability basically says that there's something um, about the person themselves, something internal to the person that requires fixing in some capacity. And within the therapy and interventions model, that is whether it's good or bad, that is what we're doing is we're trying to fix or improve some aspect of the child. And that has its place. You know, it's, there may be problems that the child has that require that kind of, that kind of approach, but it falls down when it becomes the major model that we use to understand disability, because we're constantly thinking about fixing the person and we're ignoring that the location of actually a lot of the problems and challenges that are faced by people is actually in society. It's in the attitudes of the people around them. It's in the structural barriers that our buildings and cities create or our communities create. It's within the systems and structures um, like an inflexible classroom, for example, that create real, real boundaries and challenges for our kids' full participation in life. And so it's, I think, really important for us to think about where is the appropriate medical model of disability and where do we want to cap that or put a boundary around it and say, um, there's nothing wrong with my child and the problems that my child faces largely exist because of issues outside of them and not because of who they are or not because of their impairment or their diversity. And then we start getting into the social model um, and we can start thinking about what are the changes that we might want to invest in 
that are going to make it easier for our kids to find those places of belonging, to make their contribution in the world, to, you know, have those valued social roles. And so it's a shift in, for some, a shift in where our attention gets focused and therefore what, what it is we're trying to change. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I think that we can all say that we've, we've come up against this in terms of everything that we do with our kids, um, medical or otherwise, is, is finding a place of acceptance and um, acceptance in a way that's inclusive. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the, the, the challenges, which is what you were talking about before, is finding a way to get them included in the model as opposed to just being an exception to the model and um, and people trying to make either a, a totally different path for them or, um, or not making appropriate adjustments or making it about them as opposed Absolutely. to making it about the, the system that they're trying to work within. Um, have you, do you have any, um, examples of people that you've worked with or in your personal experience where, um, you've seen the switch and how that's impacted the the child ultimately, and maybe even the children around them. The switch from the medical to the social model. Yeah. Just, just really switching that perspective and how that's impacted the child once that's done. Sure. Well, I can talk about, um, a couple of, um, examples. I can talk about one family who started thinking about this and um, switched from some of their therapies, some of their um, OT and PT services to a gym, a local gym that has a trampoline program. Mm -hmm. That So the child was able to be in an inclusive program, still working on the same skills that they were working on before, but able to do that within the context of membership and becoming an athlete and becoming a friend as opposed to um, just being a client of a service for that purpose. Um, I can think of another family who started thinking about enablement uh, for independence. And so instead of thinking about um, supports as being something that is entirely externally provided by another person in the form of caregiving, they started adjusting their home, putting a one, one example, this is for somebody who was older, um, putting a heat restriction on the shower. I'm not sure. I can't think of the right words for that, but a thermostat on the, thank you on this shower so that their son could shower independently without fear of scalding. Um, you know, they adjusted the way coffee was served in the house so that he could pour his own coffee without, again, risk of scalding, you know. Um, And so these little incremental changes in thinking about enablement and thinking about the social barrier, you know, the socially constructed barriers to his independence has meant that he's been able to become far more independent than he was just a couple of years ago uh, as he moves into adulthood. So those are two examples. Those are those are great examples. I mean, in particular, like the one that I can relate to the most is the the first one in terms of finding ways to make what was therapy into regular activity, because I think that especially as the kids get older, but even when they're younger, I mean, movement and the OT really is about movement and coordination and and sensory and all those things. So you can typically find activities that will. Mm-hmm 
um, that will be activities that all kids do that, that will either enhance, I mean, if you want to continue with the therapy, but it really takes the therapy out of therapy, which is really ultimately what we need to do. Cause I know from personal experience too, that, you know, what, when we start, because OTs typically will give, and so will speech language pathologists and everybody else will give you a home program that you need to implement as well. And the, the bottom line is, is that frequency and intensity and duration matters in those things, but then you become a therapist at home. So you're no longer a mom. Uh, you also become mm-hmm. a therapist and, and that can be very detrimental to both to the parent child relationship as well, ultimately. So it's, um, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from in terms of changing that. That's what typically happens for kids is that they find or they're provided opportunities to explore their world and develop their skills within the heart of community. And very often, um, you know, we just think about the kinds of therapies that they are, there are. There's play therapy and music therapy and horse therapy and, um, you know, art therapy. Well, those are things that all kids enjoy and those goals can be met just in those valued social roles of artist and equestrian and you know musician and but often we kind of pathologize those needs in our kids and so they get restricted in the ways that they explore those interests and the ways that they develop those skills. And the same thing happens in school. You know, a lot of the interventions and supports that are provided in school could be provided absolutely in the classroom, depending on how the classroom is organized and how lessons are, or are organized. And yet we have a medical model that says pull out and fix, you know, on a one-to-one separate way, but there's nothing actually preventing that from happening in an integrated and inclusive way. Yeah, so true. Well, so we've talked about a, a number of the alternatives now. Um, what, how do you define the good things in life? Like what, what is your ultimate goal for these kids and these families as they're pursuing this? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. There's been some research about the how different societies across time and around the world define the good things in life. And remarkably, they're pretty universal. So there are things like having a safe home, um, you know, having access to health care. But there are also things like making a contribution, being able to explore your interests, finding love, um, you know, being able to be with people who appreciate you. Um, these are, that's what I mean by the good things in life are just those universal human needs. So how, how would you recommend, um, parents move forward with both themselves in terms of, I mean, you've, you've talked to us about that perspective shift, but also in educating others about how, like, how do you have these conversations with the teacher, with the family members, um, you know, with the friend, the parents of the friends that maybe haven't been as a, inclusive, like, how do you have those conversations to start to help change the people around us as well? Well, I think it helps to ourselves unpack as much as possible, our understanding of how people typically access the good things in life. And it's through our social roles and recognize that there isn't an alternative path. It's not like you can choose, um, you know, segregated education and segregated residential options and segregated work options and expect the same outcomes that that 
doesn't happen. So, but that can be a challenge for us as parents to kind of have the chutzpah to, to, to be um, making the choices to keep our kids at, at the heart of community. It can be scary and overwhelming and difficult at times. So I think doing the work ourselves is important. So one of the things that people can do, which may be scientific, but I'm going to talk about it in an unscientific way, is to think really carefully about the kind of life they want for their child and to write that vision down and then to share it with other people. So it can be really helpful if you are talking about, you know, I want a life where my child gets, um, you know, to learn the curriculum and has friends at school and outside of school and graduates high school and is looking at employment options in an area that they really are interested in and that builds on their strengths. And I want them to live in their own home and I want them to have a love interest and I want them to make contributions as a citizen. If you're presenting that kind of vision at school or to friends or to family, then you can work backwards from that. You know, if this is what we want for our sons and daughters, then what do we need to be doing now and today in order to help them? And while therapies and interventions may be a piece of that, they have to be in service to other things we're doing to help them to actually live that life. So I think that creating and writing and sharing of a vision is one of the key steps that we can take to get allies on board. I uh, absolutely love that because I can I can imagine too at different phases as your child progresses that you can involve them obviously in terms of what do they want for themselves absolutely as they get older as well and they may have a vision for just now when they're young they they tend to have that that, that you know just now that but but that's super helpful too because um, typically what I've I've found is that people want to help they just don't know how to. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they they don't know what what um, your child might be capable of necessarily, and they need help seeing that um, and seeing them in that role as well. So I that sounds like a amazing exercise that uh, we can all go through, no matter where we are on the journey with our Absolutely. kids right now. Yeah, um, I can't tell you how grateful I am actually that 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 we 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 met. And, um, and, and that I've been able to have you here to talk about this. I encourage people to subscribe to Genius Podcast, um, but she also has a, um, something to give to you today for free. Um, could you want to just describe what that is and then we'll tell people where they can get it? Sure. So we have a package of eight social media posts for people to, um, you know, as we were just talking about reach out to other people and say, listen, this is what we are thinking about. This is what we're working on. This is the vision that we have for our child's life. And so the posts um, include statements and um, remarks of encouragement, and you can access those at goodthingsinlife.org forward slash posts. Wonderful. Well, we'll make sure we have the link both to your podcast and your website, and obviously those free posts for everybody, because I think that's a really great way to start getting introduced that conversation to the people around us uh, about what our children are capable of and the lives that we're, we are striving to achieve for them and with them. Um, Thank you so much for your time today, Genia. And um, I can't wait to see um, all the other great things that come from this conversation and the work that you do over at the good things in life. Thank you so much, Tara. So that's a wrap. 
Thanks for joining me this week on My Child Will Thrive. I'm so passionate about giving you the tools and information you need to help your child recover. And as they say, it takes a village. So join us in the My Child Will Thrive Village Facebook group, where you can meet like-minded parents and stay up to date on everything we have going on at My Child Will Thrive. This is Tara Hunkin, and I'll catch you on the next podcast or over at mildchildwillthrive.com.